Welcome back to the Word Encounter episode 260, where we'll pick things up in uh, 1 John chapter 5. Uh, let's, let's just read the last verse in chapter 4, verse 21. And it says, And we have this command from him, the one who loves God must also love his brother and sister. And then in chapter 5 it says, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father also loves the one born of him. This is how we know that we love God's children when we love God and obey his commands. And so when we love God and obey his commands, we, we, we have to love our brothers and sisters by default. Verse 3, for this is what love of God is, to keep his commands, and his commands are not a burden. I don't know about you, but sometimes it feels like the weight of what God wants from me is very, very heavy. Now, could that be because I am assuming burdens and responsibilities that aren't mine to bear? There's a huge possibility that that is, in fact, true. And so we need to make sure that those things that we're bearing, we are actually designed to bear those burdens because the word says that his burden is light. And it's saying right here that his commands are not a burden or that the burden is light. In verse four, because everyone who has been born of God conquers the world. Wow. This is the victory that has conquered the world. Our faith. Our faith is what conquers the world. Our faith has the potency to conquer the world. It doesn't seem like that to me. It doesn't feel like that. But the word says that the victory is ours because of our faith. More powerful than any nuclear weapon or anything. If faith can conquer the world, then it's more powerful than any weapon that has ever been devised. The certainty of God's testimony in verse 5. Who is the one who conquers the world but the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? So John is emphasizing this. Who is the one that conquers the world? It's the one that believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Now maybe we need to refine our understanding of what conquering the world means. I don't know. You know, I don't, I don't have revelation on that. Let's go down to verse 7. It says, For there are three that testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, and these three are in agreement. The Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God, the water, the baptism of Jesus, and the blood, the blood that was spilled on his, at his crucifixion. It says that these three things testify to the fact that Jesus is the Son of God. And in verse 9, it says, if we accept human testimony, God's testimony is greater because it is God's testimony um, that he has given about his son. The one who believes in the son of God has this testimony within himself. We have the testimony of Jesus in us. There's there's something about uh, 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 the story of Jesus that resonates internally with us. That testimony is in us. The one who does not believe uh, God has made him a liar. The one who does not believe that Jesus is the son of God. You see, that person has made God a liar because God testifies that Jesus is his son. And so if one doesn't believe this, they're saying that God, you're a liar. See, because he has not believed in the testimony God has given about his son. In verse 11. 
And this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his son. That's God's testimony. God has given us eternal, eternal life through his son, Jesus Christ. And for those that don't believe that, they're calling God a liar. This isn't our issue. That's an issue between them and God. Sometimes we take these things personally. Those things aren't our, our issues. That's between them and God. Verse 12, the one who has the son has life. The one who does not have the son of God does not have life. You can't make it any plainer than that. I have written these things to you who believe in the name of the son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. So John is doubling down. He says, look, I'm writing to you. I know you probably already know this, but I need to just keep keep writing to you so that this gets cemented in your thick skulls. Some of you that have thick heads, you know, so that you will believe that Jesus is the son of God and that you may know because of this that you, in fact, have eternal life. If we have to say it again and say it again and say it again, then we'll say it again, say it again and say it again. Because sometimes the only way we come to faith, we only the only way we come into a true belief is just to have it repeatedly hammered in our head. Effective prayer. Verse 14, it says, this is the confidence we have before him. If we ask anything according to his will. If we ask anything according to his will, what? He hears us. He does not promise to hear us if we don't ask according to his will. So we can't be asking for crazy things that aren't according to his will. He won't hear us. Verse 15. And if we know that he hears whatever we ask according to his will, we know that we have what we have asked for. We know that we have what we asked of him. So If we know that we have asked according to uh, his will, then it is incumbent on him to hear us and to grant us what it is that we have asked. Now, that speaks nothing about the timing. See, a lot of times the timing is what throws people off. They pray, they pray something they make a righteous prayer or whatever, and they expect something to happen immediately. And if it doesn't happen immediately, tomorrow or within the next week or the next month, then they think that their prayer has not been answered. See, God's timing, we, we can't force uh, God's hand with regard to timing. That, that's his responsibility. That's his call. Verse 16. If anyone sees a fellow believer committing a sin that doesn't lead to death... He should ask, and God will give a life to that sinner. If anyone sees a fellow believer committing sin that doesn't lead to death, then we should intercede for that uh, person, for that brother or sister, because it says fellow believer, and God will give that brother or sister life. Now, this is talking about like a habitual sin. You know, it can be just a singular sin, but it it also applies to a habitual sin. Somebody who, let's say, habitually lying, lying all the time, lying all the time. That person is not necessarily committed to death. You know, death in the spirit, no salvation, that sort of thing. It says intercede for him and keep doing it. However, uh, and God will give uh, life to him to those who commit sin. That doesn't lead to death. 
In other words, this implies that there is a sin or there are categories of sins that in fact do lead to death. Now it's presumed here that this could be talking about the unpardonable sin, which many assume to be uh, blaspheming the Holy Spirit. And so if if one blasphemes the Holy Spirit or one uh, uh, really um, uh, comes at God or whatever, that could be considered the unpardonable sin. You know, and so those sins, uh, uh, the thought goes, are the ones that lead to death. And so because John says here, there is sin, however, that leads to death. I am not saying he should pray about that. So he's saying, I'm not saying that you should waste your time and pray for those people who are committing the sin or the sins that lead to death. And this has to do with, you know, uh, I believe with, like I said, the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit or, or um um, uh, somehow uh, 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 blaspheming God, you know, and, and blaspheming Jesus, you know, and those sort of things, as opposed to anything um, that one does, like uh, sexual immorality, ad- uh, adultery, or this, that, and the other. And it says, keep, keep praying for those folks, because they can still have this thing called eternal life. Just keep interceding, keep interceding. But there are a group of people who are so against what it is uh, that God stands for and uh, what God is doing. Uh, John is essentially saying, don't waste your time with them. Verse 17, <clears throat> it says here, uh, all, righteousness, all unrighteousness is sin, and there is sin that doesn't lead to death, which indicates that not all sins are equal. <laughs> Some one can uh, 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 come back from you know, uh, repent and come back from, but this suggests that there is a sin or there are a category or there is a category of sin when you cross into that valley, cross that valley into that territory, there is no coming back. In conclusion, I'm going to read from the Passion Translation in verses 18 through 21. So let's go over to the Passion Translation, and it says, We are convinced that everyone fathered by God does not make sinning a way of life because the Son of God protects the child of God, and the evil one cannot touch him. So he's saying that, you know, we're convinced that while every man sins, you know, that anyone fathered by God does not make sinning a way of life. There's, there's a difference between sinning and make sinning a way of life. You know, when, when one makes sinning a way of life, then one is essentially justifying the sinning as being cool, being fine, nothing wrong. There are those who fall into sin and they're in a stranglehold. You know, they're in a stronghold and they can't do anything about it. They know it's wrong. They're trying to stop. That's different. Okay, that's not what's being referred to here. And so as long as things aren't made a, a, a way of life, you know, there's there's redemption for people. We all fall into that. You know, it says in verse 19, it says, we know that we are God's children and that um, the whole world lies under the misery and influence of the evil one. It says the whole world lies under the misery and the influence of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has made our understanding come alive so that we can know by experience the one who is true. And we are in him 
who is true God's son, Jesus Christ, the true God and eternal life. So, little children, guard yourself from worshiping anything but him. He's saying guard yourself against idolatry is what John is saying. And so then John uh, goes on and John writes uh, a second letter. And so uh, let me go back to the Christian Standard Bible. Um, And so John writes a second letter. And uh, this is either written to a singular family or when he says elect lady, that is a metaphor for the church. Not really sure if he's writing to a particular family or if this is a larger church body. Uh, But regardless, it's still appropriate for the church at large. And so in verse one, it says to the elect lady and her children. So again, either this is a woman and her children or this is a church and all of the congregants in the church. That's who he's writing to. In verse five, it says, so now I ask you, dear lady, not as if I were writing to you a new command, but one we have had from the beginning that we love one another. So again, John is hammering this love one another thing, right? So there must have been a lot of unlove going on within the body for him to keep bringing this up. It says, this is love, that we walk according to his commands. This is the command, as you have heard it from, from, from the beginning, that you walk in love. It says in verse seven, many deceivers have gone out into the world. They do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. This is the deceiver and the antichrist. See, the one that doesn't confess and and, and, and it's implicit here or it's implied here that these are people that used to be believers, but have left and gone out into the world and they don't proclaim that Jesus came in the flesh. And so John is saying these are deceivers and they're the Antichrist. It says, watch yourself so that you don't lose what we have worked for, but that you may receive a full reward implying here that you will not receive your full reward. Maybe you'll receive partial reward, but you'll not receive your full reward if you don't watch yourself and watch out, you know, where where you're going with regard to your belief. It says in verse nine, anyone who does not remain in Christ's teaching and goes beyond it. That's an interesting phraseology. Anyone who does not remain in Christ's teaching but goes beyond it, does not have God. The one who remains in that teaching, the one has, uh, this one has both the Father and the Son. When I, when I read this, what this brings to mind to me is the people that want to add on to the things of God. And so God has certain things that he wants us to do. And some people in their own selfish wisdom think they know better to, than God. And maybe they want to add on some things that they consider even more holy than what God demands. And so they may add on extra burdens. This is what Jesus had against the Pharisees, that they were requiring of people to do things that never came from the Lord. But it was considered to be even more righteous, more holy. Let's go on to verse 10. If anyone comes 
If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, excuse me, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your home and do not greet him. What this is saying, if anyone comes and does not bring the teaching of Jesus coming in the flesh, if anybody comes to your home bringing some other teaching. Now, when this says home, this can also equal church, because uh, in those days, a lot of churches, a lot of congregations, if you will, met in homes. And so they were small home churches. Churches. And so what John is saying, if anyone is coming to you to, to teach the word, to preach the word to people, but they don't proclaim that Jesus coming in the flesh, it says here, don't even let them in. Don't even let them in the door. For the one who greets him shares in his evil works. So John is saying, if you do this, if you let him in and teaching this kind of nonsense, then you're going to be sharing in his evil works. And that was the end of Second John. <laughs> you know, it's a very short um, book. And so let's go to Third John, which is also um, a one um, a one chapter book, very short here. And so it says here um, a purpose of uh, of Third John here is to encourage, um, you know, to encourage a leader. In particular, this one is kind of intimate because it's written to one person, but we can ex uh, extrapolate it and apply it to a bunch of people in a bunch of different situations. And so it says to my friend Gaius, whom I love in the truth, dear friend, I pray that you are prospering in every way and are in good health, just as your whole life is um, just as your whole life is going well. So obviously Gaius is doing well. He's doing well. And health, it seems like it indicates he's doing well in business or finances. Maybe he's doing well in his family. It just seems like Gaius is doing well in general all the way around. In verse 5, it says, Dear friend, you are acting faithfully in whatever you do for the brothers and sisters, especially when they are strangers. They have testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. In other words, what John is saying is you will do well to send them on their journey, not with empty pockets. And so John is saying you will do well to aid them in their mission. It says, since they were sent out for the sake of the name, for the sake of Jesus, accepting nothing from pagans and so or Gentiles, they didn't accept anything from Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support such people so we can be co-workers with the truth. In other words, we should financially support these people. They've gone out like Abraham on, on a call. They've gone out. They've gone out into the field, into the mission field, and they're doing what they were called to do. And John is, is writing to Gaius, um, you know, you're an honorable man, a man of integrity doing well. You know, don't neglect supporting these people doing the work of God. And we can extend that to those of us today. In verse 9, uh, I wrote something to the church, but they operate. Oh, I knew I was going to mess this up. But diatrophies, yeah, diatrophies, D-I-O-T-R-E-P-H-E-S, diatrophies, who loves to have first place among them. See, I wrote something to the church, but diatrophies, who loves to have first place among the church, who loves to have first place among the people of the church, does not receive our authority. This is why, if I come, I will remind him of the works he is doing, slandering us with malicious words. And he is not satisfied with that. 
He not only refuses to welcome fellow believers, but he even stops those who want to do so and expels them from the church. So Diotrephes seems like he's a guy who feels as though he is the, uh, the, 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 the king of that local fellowship, that local congregation. He's not going to take any outside influence, any outside guidance. He's not going to be responsible to anybody other than to himself. So this is like his fiefdom. These are my people. Everybody keep your hands off my people, and I will expel anybody who is under my umbrella who does not follow my demands. So it sounds like he's putting his, himself in the place of Jesus. It says in verse 11, Dear friend, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. The one who does good is of God. The one who does evil has not seen God. Everyone who speaks of Demetrius, even the truth itself, or should I say, everyone speaks well of Demetrius, even the truth itself, even the truth speaks well of Demetrius. <laughs> and we also speak well of him. And you know that our testimony is true. And that is the end of John's third letter. Mm. And with that, we are going to proceed on to Jude. Now, who was Jude? Jude was the brother of Jesus and James. Uh, this letter or, or this uh, book was written in about AD 65-ish. Uh, we just came out of John. John wrote his letter somewhere around 80, 90, 80, 95. This is about 30 years prior to what John, when John wrote, uh, at least those books. To whom was it written, Jewish Christians, Why? to encourage the church in vigilance and to oppose heresy. So let's get started here. Down to verse three, it says, Jews purpose in writing, dear friends, although I was eager to write you about the salvation we share, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was delivered to the saints once for all. For some people who were designated for this judgment long ago have come in by stealth have come in secretly, uh, they are ungodly. See, turning the grace of our Lord into sensuality and denying Jesus Christ, our only master and Lord. In other words, it seems like there's some people who are bringing sex uh, um, uh, practices into worshiping the Lord. Because remember, at that time, that was a common thing, right? Uh, sexual behavior was a form of worship uh, in pagan temples and, uh, and some other things. And so it looks like these people uh, who apparently uh, at one time were a part of the body are trying to bring this in, in secret into the congregation, into the church. <clears throat> in verse five, it says, now I want to remind you, although you came to know all these things uh, once and for all, that Jesus saved a people out of Egypt and later destroyed those who did not believe. In other words, at one time, Jesus or the Lord God saved the people, brought them out of Egypt, but the people went crazy. And later on, they all got destroyed in the wilderness. So he saved the people and then destroyed them. And then it says in verse six, and the angels who did not keep their own position, but abandoned their proper dwelling, those who fell with Lucifer, um, he has kept an eternal change in deep darkness for judgment on that great day. And so they got cast down and now they're chained in hell waiting for the great day of judgment. In other words, if people that were once uh, of, of high position in the, in the things of the Lord in, in God's kingdom, 
And then they got cast out and now they're in chains waiting for judgment. God brought his people out of Egypt one time and then they went crazy and then destroyed them. <clears throat> Likewise with Sodom and Gomorrah, prospering at one time and then getting destroyed. And then it says in verse 8, in the same way, these, repeat, these people relying on their dreams, defiling their flesh. He's talking about these ones that are trying to bring sensuality and sexuality into the faith. <laughs> Reject authority and slander glorious ones, glorious ones being angelic beings. And so they're doing all of these things, right? <laughs> They're, they're, they're relying on their dreams, they're defiling their flesh, they're rejecting authority, and they're slandering glorious ones. It says in verse 9, and this is a reference to the last one, the slandering of the glorious ones. It says, yet when Michael the archangel was disputing with the devil in an argument about Moses' body, and it's been a lot of debate and discussion on what exactly that means, but it's the next part that I want to Highlight here. He did not dare utter a slanderous condemnation against him, but said, the Lord rebuke you. The archangel Michael was in some kind of dispute with the devil, but Michael never insulted him. It says Michael dared not insult him. And so here we have the devil and we have an archangel of the Lord, but the archangel dare not insult the devil. That's, that's interesting. I find that to be very interesting. You can have an enemy, but that enemy still commands respect? Apparently so. So when we're talking about the enemy, when we're talking about the devil, Lucifer, if you will, this is a caution to me. Watch out how I refer to him. Watch out with regard to how I refer to any of my enemies. Because they're still potential children of God. I can vehemently disagree with them, but I have to watch out how I speak to them and not insult them. That's the way I interpret this. In verse 10, but these people blas any blaspheme anything they do not understand and what they do understand by instinct, like irrational animals, by these things they are destroyed. So they don't understand... <laughs> anything that they don't understand. They blaspheme anything they don't understand. And what they do understand, those things that they understand, those things destroy them. Verse 12, they are shepherds who only look after themselves. They are waterless clouds carrying, uh, carried along by the winds, trees in late autumn, fruitless, twice dead, and uprooted. <laughs> so, <laughs> so Judah's saying that's what these people are. Twice dead and uprooted. Verse 14. It was about these, it was about these people that Enoch in the seventh generation from Adam prophesied, look, the Lord comes with tens of thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly concerning all the ungodly acts that they have done in an ungodly way and concerning all the harsh things ungodly sinners have said against him. One, two, three, four, four ungodlies. Verse 16, these people are discontented grumblers living according to their desires. Their mouths utter arrogant words, flattering people for their own advantage. But you, dear friends, 
Remember what is predicted by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They told you in the end times there will be scoffers living according to their own ungodly desires. These people create divisions and are worldly, not having the spirit in them. And in his exhortation and benediction, in verse 20, it says, But you, dear friends, as you build yourself up in your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, he says, keep yourselves, um, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting expectantly for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ for eternal life. Verse 22 says, have mercy on those who waver. Save others by snatching them from the fire. See, it's like snatching them out of the fire. Save them. Have mercy on others, but with fear and reverence, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. Don't let the flesh influence you. Verse 24. Now to him who is able to protect you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory without blemish and with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, power and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen. Awesome word, Jude. Awesome word. And with that, we have finished Jude. And tomorrow we will start our journey into what has been a very difficult book for me to comprehend. The last book of the Bible, Revelation. Jesus is always sending forth his invitation to his potential children. If you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that I, Jesus, am Lord and Savior, then I, Jesus, promise that you shall have eternal life. That is the proposition. It requires a response from you. Everybody stay safe, be blessed, keep your eyes fixed on Jesus, and should he grace us with another day of life, we'll see you tomorrow in the next episode of The Word Encounter. Bye-bye.